But as we prepare to open God's word, let's pray a a prayer for illumination. Um, let's, Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we ask you to look upon us in grace as we look away from ourselves into the face of your Son, whom you have appointed our mediator and savior. As all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in your Son, guide us by your Holy Spirit into the true understanding of the doctrines of Christ. May our meditation upon his truth produce in us the fruit of righteousness to the glory and exaltation of his name, the instruction and edification of this congregation and the salvation of the lost through our witness. We pray this in the name and favor of your well-beloved Son, Jesus Christ, in dependence on his Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. And if you would, please turn with me to our sermon text for this evening, which is Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. This is the closing verses of the book of Matthew. well-known words, often called the Great Commission. So we'll be considering this evening our scripture text, Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. And pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore... And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, to the end of the age. So far the reading of God's word. Well, it was about four years ago that Megan and I began attending a URC church, and the church that we began attending... Um, in Cincinnati, celebrates the Lord's Supper on a weekly basis, as we do here at at Christ URC. And when I first began attending that church, I said to myself, this is a really nice practice. I like being able to uh, partake of the Lord's Supper on such a regular basis. But isn't the sacrament of baptism kind of getting shortchanged? If we're celebrating the Lord's Supper every week, we're only baptized once. And of course, we recognize that to an extent, this has to do with the nature of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism is the sign of entrance into the covenant community, and the Lord's Supper is the sign of renewal, of covenant renewal. And so we we do it time and time again. But we also, it's also important for us to be reminded and to recognize that baptism is not just a benefit to us in the moment of our baptism, but it remains of benefit to us throughout our entire lives. That as we look back on our baptisms, We are reminded of the promise of God. We're focused again on the gospel promises of Jesus Christ. Well, let me set the context a little bit for this Lord's Day, as I'm bringing us in kind of in the middle of the the catechism here. The previous Lord's Day, Lord's Day 25, talks about the word as creating faith and the sacraments as strengthening faith. 
And it tells us that both word and sacraments are intended to focus our faith on Christ's one sacrifice for us, on the sacrifice which Christ accomplished for us on the cross. That the sacraments help us understand more clearly the promise of the gospel, of our forgiveness of sins and eternal life, which we have because of this one sacrifice of Christ. And so this evening, we'll think about Lord's Day 26 and the sacrament of baptism more specifically and how this sacrament focuses and strengthens our faith on Christ's one sacrifice accomplished for us. And so we'll think about each of the three questions of this Lord's Day. In turn, we'll first think about question 69 and baptism as a sign and seal. And then we'll think about question 70 and the spiritual promise of baptism. And finally, question 71 and the scriptural proof which the catechism offers for its teaching on the sacrament of baptism. So our three points, sign and seal, spiritual promise, and scriptural proof. Well, baptism, as we uh, read in Lord's Day 25, is a sign and a seal. As we read then in question 69, the first one of this Lord's Day, we read that it reminds and assures us that Christ's one sacrifice on the cross benefits each of us personally. Now recall the catechism's question and answer on true faith. The catechism asks, what is true faith? And the answer is, True faith is not only a sure knowledge by which I hold as true all that God has revealed to us in his word, it is also a wholehearted trust which the Holy Spirit works in me by the gospel that God has freely granted not only to others but to me also forgiveness of sins, eternal righteousness, and salvation. And so baptism, as we see in this question even of question 69, helps us to grasp this but-to-me-also part, that that the uh, promises of the gospel, forgiveness of sins and eternal life, are not just for others, but for me also. They affect me personally, each one of you personally. And it reminds and assures us as both a sign and a seal of the promise of the gospel, which comes by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, This language of sign and seal, as I mentioned, was used in Lord's Day 25 to talk about the sacraments in general. It talks about the sacraments as visible and holy signs and seals. And um, this language, though, of, of the sacraments as visible and holy signs and seals did not originate with our catechism, nor did it even originate in the ancient church. For any church history buffs, you may recognize something similar to Augustine's definition of the sacraments in this that that our catechism has picked up. But listen to what Paul says about Abraham in Romans 4, verse 11. He says, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he has by faith. And so this is why the church uses this language of sign and seal to talk about the sacraments, because it's scriptural language. It's language that comes from Paul. Augustine, we might say, just ripped Paul off, and our catechism ripped Augustine off. But I think it's helpful from time to time to think about what we mean when we say that the sacraments are signs and seals. Because this language, we often use this language, but I think it can sometimes become confusing theological language that we don't think about how simple it really is and what it really means. What does it mean for Abraham to have received circumcision as a sign and seal of the righteousness that he has by faith? And what does it mean for our baptisms to be signs and seals of the gospel promise of Jesus Christ? Let's think first for a minute about baptism as a sign. And there's signs all around us, aren't there? This is kind of a silly example, but I found it to be helpful. 
Um, we can think about the McDonald's sign, right? We all know the McDonald's sign, the, the golden arches. I think people still call it that. Um, but uh, but that, that McDonald's sign, the M, we all, we all know that sign. And there's a few things we can say about that sign as a sign that helps us think about baptism as a sign. The sign points to a reality beyond itself, right? That sign points to the reality of the restaurant. The sign also has a correspondence with the reality. It makes sense that the sign for McDonald's would be an M and not a redheaded girl named Wendy, right? But the sign is not the same thing as the reality to which it points. It's not the same thing as the restaurant. I bet kids, you'd be pretty disappointed, right, if your parents said, I'm taking you to McDonald's, and they took you just to the sign for McDonald's. I would be disappointed <laughs> if that happened to me. So we can recognize that signs have a point to a reality, that they have a correspondence with the reality, but they are not themselves the reality. And so we can think as well of these characteristics in relation to baptism, can't we? Water, the water of baptism is an outward, visible, tangible sign that points to an inward and spiritual reality, the promise of the gospel. Not only that, but water has a natural correspondence with the reality to which it points. Because it points to an inward washing, an inward purification. And we as humans intuitively understand that water has to do with purification and washing, don't we? We can think, for example, about the various washings in the Old Testament that God commanded under the Mosaic law. Listen to Exodus 30, verse 17, where the Lord said to Moses, You shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it with which Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and their feet. Now, God doesn't even need to say here explicitly what this water is for, does he? Because they knew intuitively, and we know, that it has to do with purification, that if someone is to enter into the presence of God, that they must be pure, that they must purify themselves. He gave them a fitting and a natural sign to, to point to this, to signify this, and so he has given us a fitting and a natural sign in baptism to point to the reality of an inward washing, an inward purification. But just as we said with the sign of a restaurant is not the same thing as the restaurant itself, so it is with baptism. The water of baptism is not the same as the washing of our sins, is not the same as the inward purification. It points to that reality, it has a natural correspondence with that reality, but the water itself does not wash away our sins or make our souls clean. So, water is a sign which points to an inward and spiritual reality, has a correspondence with the reality, but it is not itself the reality. And baptism is also a seal. Just as there are signs all around us, there are also seals all around us. I think Pastor Bill may have used this example earlier this year, but it's a good one, um, so I'll use it again if he did. Um, but in the ancient world, right, kings would always put seals on their letters so that when they sent the letter to somebody, the person who received it would know that it was really from the king, that it was really what it testified to be. The seal guaranteed and testified that the letter was what it claimed to be, that it actually was from the king. The, the seal served as a guarantee, as a, as a testimony of the truth. And so it is with baptism. Our king has given us a seal of the promise of the gospel in baptism. Baptism testifies 
and guarantees that God's gospel promise is true for everyone who accepts what the sacrament signifies in true faith. For everyone who clings to their baptism, who looks to Christ for their salvation, in other words. So baptism is both a sign and a seal of the promise of the gospel. And now that we've spent a few minutes thinking about baptism as a sign and a seal, we'll spend a few minutes now thinking about what the catechism says more specifically about the inward and spiritual reality that is signified and sealed by baptism. What exactly it means when the catechism says that we are washed with Christ's blood and with Christ's spirit. And that brings us then to our second point, spiritual promise. Question 70 of our catechism talks more specifically about the spiritual promise of baptism, the promise of the gospel, which is signified and sealed in our baptisms. Now, I entitled this sermon, if you saw in your bulletin, if anyone reads the sermon titles, Baptism, a Double Washing. Because baptism is, a, is actually a double washing in two ways. It's an outward washing that points to an inward washing. But as our catechism points out, it also points to a double inward washing, the washing with Christ's blood and the washing with Christ's spirit. Now, the reformers sometimes spoke of a double benefit or a double grace of Christ. For example, I'll read a brief quote here by John Calvin. He says, Christ was given to us by God's generosity to be grasped and possessed by us in faith. By partaking of him, we principally receive a double grace, namely that being reconciled to God through Christ's blamelessness, we may have in heaven, instead of a judge, a gracious father, and secondly, that sanctified by Christ's spirit, we may cultivate blamelessness and purity of life. Now, this double grace, this double benefit that Calvin talks about here is the same one that our catechism is talking about in question 70. The washing with Christ's blood and Christ's spirit, or as we more often refer to them, justification and sanctification. Now, baptism is a sign and seal of the washing with Christ's blood, and we see this very clearly in Ephesians 1, 7 through 8. Chuck read this um, passage, the opening passage of Ephesians earlier, and I'll just read verses 7 to 8 here. In him that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So as I mentioned, when the catechism talks about the washing with Christ's blood, it's talking about justification. The declaration from God that we are righteous on the basis of Christ's righteousness imputed to us freely by faith alone. Our Lord lived, Christ lived a perfect and sinless life, resisting every temptation. Can you imagine how hard it must have been with sinful people all around him being tempted by the devil? And yet as we sang in Psalm 40, before, uh, before the sermon, Christ was the ultimate speaker, the ultimate one who said, I delight to do your will, O my God. He fulfilled those words of David. He said those words to the Father. He was the ultimate speaker of them. And because of Christ's death, because he took upon himself the penalty that we deserve, our sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven us. And because of Christ's perfect life, the Father grants and credits to us, apart from any merits of our own, Christ's perfect satisfaction and righteousness, as if we had been as perfectly righteous as Christ was obedient for us, if only we accept this gift with faith. This is by faith alone, brothers and sisters. This is a gift which Christ offers to you. 
And this is what your baptism testifies to you. To each one of you personally, it is a sign and a seal, a guarantee that by faith alone, your sins are forgiven and you stand righteous before God. That you are declared washed of your sins, that you are declared pure and not under the condemnation of God. Baptism testifies that this promise of justification is for you personally. But it gets even better, doesn't it? Because as Chuck also mentioned earlier, salvation is from God from beginning to end. Right? God does not just declare us washed and pure. He doesn't just declare our sins forgiven. But then he actually changes us. He frees us from the guilt of sin. And then he frees us from sin's power. And this is the washing with Christ's spirit. Think about Romans 6, which uses baptism as an image of being crucified and buried and then raised with Christ. Romans 6, beginning in verse 1, says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This newness of life, which Paul is talking about here in Romans 6, as those who have been buried and raised with Christ, is sanctification, is the washing with Christ's Spirit. The process in which Christ's Spirit works in us and makes us increasingly holy and pure inwardly, conforming us to the image of Christ, in which We delight to do the will of God more and more, putting to death the old self, raising to life the new self governed by the Spirit. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So why, brothers and sisters, do we work out our salvation, which is ours by faith alone in Christ? Why do we seek to do those things which are pleasing to God? It's because God himself is at work in us, empowering us to desire those things which are pleasing to him, to will the things which are pleasing to him. But not only that, to will and to work, to actually do the things which are pleasing to him, which bring glory to him. God empowers us in our sanctification to live holy lives, to work out our salvation, in awe of the fact that it is God himself, it is none other than God himself, who is at work in us. And this too is signified and sealed by your baptism. The washing with water is a sign, a guarantee, a testimony to you and to me that the good work which God has begun in you, he will bring to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So as you look to your baptisms, brothers and sisters, remain steadfast in your desire to do the will of God and seeking to obey him because he has promised to work in you. He has promised to wash you with Christ's spirit, to conform you to the image of Christ. As surely as you were washed with the water of baptism outwardly. So baptism signifies and seals to us this double inward washing, the washing with Christ's blood of our justification, and the washing with Christ's spirit of our sanctification. Now we recognize, of course, that our catechism is a faithful summary of scripture. 
And so the last question and answer of this Lord's Day gives some scriptural proof for what the Catechism has said thus far about baptism. Where do we find in scripture that Christ promises to wash us with his blood and spirit as, as certainly as we are washed outwardly with the water of baptism? And so this brings us then to our third and last point, scriptural proof. And the Catechism in question and answer 71 gives a few different um, passages to, to prove its teaching on baptism, but we'll spend our time this evening focusing on the passage which we read at the beginning, the Great Commission at the end of Matthew 28. Now these are really incredible verses, aren't they? These verses at the end of Matthew 28, often we call it the Great Commission. As Christ has been raised from the dead, he stands before his disciples clothed with all power and authority, and then he gives them a commission and a promise. So let me read verses 17 to 20 one more time here to remind us of those verses. Christ says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, I want to note just a few things about these verses for us. First of all, this passage is why we baptize in the first place. It's because Christ, our Lord, has commanded that we baptize. And he has instituted this sacrament for the church. And so, on the command of Christ, we baptize believers and their children who are brought into the church. Those who are made disciples are to be baptized. This is why we speak of baptism, as I mentioned at the beginning, about a sign of entrance into the covenant community. It's the beginning of a life of discipleship for those who either enter the church as adult converts or for children who are born into Christian families. This passage is also where we get our baptismal formula, those words that the minister says when he baptizes someone. He baptizes in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the name of our triune God. But it's important for us to recognize that being baptized in the name of our triune God is not just saying words over somebody. It's much more than that. It's being baptized into a relationship. Our triune God puts his name upon us in baptism and sets us apart and consecrates us. He claims us for his own and promises to be our God. The same promise which he promised to Adam, to Noah, to Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob. I will be a God to you and your children. Listen to what God said to Abraham in Genesis 17, verse 7. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And then as we fast forward about 2,000 years to the time when God had brought all of these promises which he made to Abraham to fulfillment, when he had given to the descendants of Abraham and to Abraham himself a better land than the land of Canaan, a heavenly land, when he had fulfilled his promise to bless all the nations of the earth through Abraham's promised seed, Jesus Christ. And when this promised seed had finished his work, when he had been raised from the dead and ascended to heaven, when he had taken his seat at the right hand of the Father and poured out his spirit at Pentecost, Peter said these words in his sermon at Pentecost in Acts 2, verse 37. Now when they heard this, that is those who heard Peter's sermon, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. 
and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. This, brothers and sisters, is what it means to be baptized in the name of our triune God. It's a promise from our God that he will be our God, that he will wash us with Christ's blood and with his spirit. Now, of course, we recognize that if to be baptized in the name of God means that he promises to be our God, this also means that we are his people. And so in baptism, as God sets us apart from the rest of the world, as he consecrates us for service to himself, this also involves, uh, as it is the beginning of a life of discipleship, a life of obedience to our God. It represents also the requirements which we have as those who have been set apart, as those who belong to God as his covenant children. It requires of us that we put our faith in Christ and that we repent of our sins. It obligates us to live lives of obedience to our triune God. Our covenant Lord as those who have been washed with Christ's blood and who are even now being washed with his spirit, who have been justified and who will and are being sanctified. It puts us under this obligation. But do not misunderstand me, brothers and sisters. This is not the kind of obedience which a slave owes to an to a overbearing master. This is the kind of obedience which a child delights to give a loving father. I love my earthly father, and I delight to do what pleases him because of all that he has done for me. How much more with our heavenly father, who has given us so much, who has made such great promises to us, who has washed us with Christ's blood, who is even now washing us with his spirit, should we delight to do his will? Should we love to do his commands and desire to obey him? So, as we conclude, in all this, as we've been talking about, baptism is intended to focus and to strengthen our faith in Christ's one sacrifice on the cross as the only grounds of our salvation. If you have been baptized, you have been set apart as one upon whom our triune God has put his name and claimed you for himself. He has promised to be your God. By faith, you have been washed with Christ's blood. You are being washed with Christ's spirit. Now, in Reformed churches, since we believe that baptism is rightly administered to the children of believers, it's very common for, uh, for people in Reformed churches not to remember their baptisms. I don't remember my baptism at all. But because baptism is primarily a promise from God, it doesn't matter if you don't remember your baptism. The water was put on you in the past, and you can look back to that and cling to that and know that that promise is for you, that, what was, that the washing with Christ's blood and the washing with Christ's spirit because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross are for you personally, and that it is guaranteed to you by faith alone, because you have been baptized, it's a sign and a seal of that promise. You can cling to that event. Some of you probably do remember your baptisms. And if you do remember your baptism, you probably remember the water being poured on you or sprinkled on you or going under the water and coming back up again. And so if you do remember your baptism, remember that feeling of the water washing you outwardly. Because that's intended to signify an inward washing, a washing with Christ's blood and spirit. 
Know that just as surely as you were washed outwardly with that water, you have been washed with Christ's blood and are being washed with his spirit by faith alone. And in light of our baptisms, brothers and sisters, let us live lives of gratitude, of obedience to our God, who has given us this wonderful, visible sign and seal of the promise of forgiveness of sins and eternal life, which we have in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God and our Father, we give you great thanks and praise for the promise that we have in Christ of the forgiveness of sins and eternal life because of his one sacrifice on our behalf. We thank you that in our frailty and weakness, Christ has instituted for us visible, tangible signs and seals of these promises to us, that we can be assured and strengthened in our faith, that as surely as water purifies us outwardly, so surely are we purified inwardly by Christ's blood and spirit through faith in him. Please increase and strengthen our faith in Christ. Help us by your Holy Spirit to cling to our baptisms, knowing that we have been baptized into none other than the name of our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And help us to live lives of gratitude as those who belong to you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.